Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. India is often referred to as the world's biggest democracy, but the rule of Narendra Modi and the BJP has called that status into question. Modi has clamped down on political dissent and the rights of India's Muslim population while presiding over a catastrophic public health crisis. The sharpest forms of repression under Modi have taken place in Kashmir, where the Indian state has always displayed its most authoritarian characteristics. The following report from the New York Times describes the situation in Kashmir in August 2019. It's the day Muslims normally gather to pray. But in recent weeks, it's also become a day of protest. There is only one solution! Gun solution! Gun solution! There is only one solution! Gun solution! Gun solution! As protests break out across Kashmir, Indian officials repeat what has become a well-worn soundbite. There has been no major law and order situation reported from across the valley. Life is slowly returning to normal. And the situation is uh, returning back uh, slowly uh, to the normal. But things here don't seem normal. Our guest today for a discussion of Kashmir's past and present is Vanessa Chishti. Vanessa teaches history at the OP Jindal Global University in Delhi. What was the status of Kashmir under British colonial rule? Uh, before I answer that question, I should begin by saying that the word Kashmir has been used over time to describe many different territorial geographical entities. And for the purpose of our conversation, whenever I say Kashmir, I mean the Valley of Kashmir, which is currently under Indian control and is home to the movement for self-determination. Now, in the period of British colonial rule from the mid-19th century onwards, the Kashmir Valley was part of the princely state of Jammu and Kashmir, which was created in the year 1846 when the British conquered Kashmir and handed it over to their ally, the Maharaja of Jammu. Now, at this time, Kashmir assumed a great significance for the British in the context of a very intense imperial rivalry between Britain and Russia. And the significance of Kashmir lay in its it being strategically located between British and Russian spheres of influence in Central and South Asia. Now, unlike areas that were governed directly by the British in the Indian subcontinent, the princely states like Kashmir and others had native rulers and were subject to considerable indirect control by the colonial government. And through the JNK state, the British were able to influence frontier politics without the risk or expense of governing the place directly. So uh, because the arrangement was so beneficial to them, they were always keen to underwrite the power of the Jammu and Kashmir state. Uh, Now, this allowed the new rulers of the state an unusual degree of latitude vis-a-vis their subjects. Uh, They imposed a predatory tax burden on agriculture and manufacture, institutionalized various forms of discrimination against the Muslim majority population, and favored non-Kashmiri and Kashmiri Hindus for public office, land grants, and other forms of state patronage. And by the late 19th century, the regime, which was headed by a Hindu prince, was anchored in Kashmir by a class of largely Hindu landlords, state officials and moneylenders, while the artisans and peasants were overwhelmingly Muslim. And this had very significant implications for the lines along which politics cleaved in the 20th century. 
What political forces were active in Kashmir at the moment of decolonization in the 20th century? Now, in the decisive years, that's between the 1930s and 1947-48, the most significant political organizations that were active in Kashmir were the National Conference, which was a populist party with some socialist inflections in its rhetoric, and the Muslim Conference, which was a conservative Muslim party. Now, opposition to the Maharaja's regime was evident in episodes of political militancy from the 1860s onwards, but this opposition was contained by the regime through a stringently enforced ban on political activity and newspaper publishing, and of course, the use of brute force. In 1931, the simmering discontent uh, was kind of catalyzed into open revolt by the crushing impact of the Great Depression. And two very significant things happened that year. One was an uprising in Kashmir, which Premnath Bazaz, who was a Kashmiri socialist, described as, and I quote, an elemental upsurge. And two, an armed no-tax campaign by Muslim smallholders in Punch, which was one of the Muslim-dominated districts in the Jammu province. Now, the combined impact of these two events was immense. The Maharaja, among other things, was forced to lift the ban on political activity, substantially relax curbs on newspaper publishing. And he was also forced to constitute a representative body, although it had virtually no powers and it was to be elected on a very narrow properties franchise, which would have allowed an estimated 3 to 5% of the population to vote. The first political party that was formed after this was the All Jammu and Kashmir Muslim Conference, which after a few years was renamed the National Conference. Uh, And this party campaigned quite vigorously against the regime and the big landlords, moneylenders, and it had a committed following among a small but committed following among the urban working classes, small peasants, and landless agricultural laborers. Uh, And it even had a handful of communist radicals working within the party inspired by the popular front uh, strategy. The radicalism of the national conference, however, quite sadly, was very short-lived. By the late 1930s, sections of the national conference leadership with an eye on the elections were attempting to win support among the propertied classes who were the only people who could vote and most of whom were not Muslims. As a result of this and a few other things, the party began to lose support among its core base, which was among poor and middling Muslims, uh, without gaining much support among the propertied classes, most of whom, kind of unsurprisingly, saw their interests as tied to the Maharaja's regime. Uh, Now, faced with this quite steady decline in popularity, Sheikh Abdullah, who was by then the most prominent leader of the National Conference and a person who, as as we will see, becomes very important in subsequent years, um, Abdullah aligns the party, uh, the National Conference, with the Indian National Congress, which is the largest party in the Indian subcontinent at the time. And the Congress favors actually a very, very limited program of political reform in the princely states. Uh, And this was well to the right of the professed 
anti-feudal socialist radicalism of the National Conference. And this alliance with the Indian National Congress marks a decisive rightward shift for the National Conference under Abdullah's leadership and also a steady decline in popularity, which just continues unabated thereafter. Another significant thing that happens is that in 1948, the Muslim League, which is the kind of claimed to be the party representing Muslim interests in the subcontinent, uh, issued its first explicit call for a separate Muslim homeland. And this is something that had a significant impact in the Jammu and Kashmir state. It resulted in a large section of the national conference breaking away and forming the pro-Pakistan Muslim conference. And the newly created Muslim conference aligned itself with the Muslim League. And much like the Muslim League, the core base of the Muslim conference consisted of Muslim landlords, traders, the urban petty bourgeoisie, and some students. Following the split, the national conference led by Abdullah was wiped out completely among Muslims in the Jammu province and lost even more support in the valley. Now, in the decisive years between the 1930s and 37-48, the pro-India National Conference was rapidly losing support, but was better organized and therefore able to act decisively, while the pro-Pakistan Muslim Conference was poorly organized, driven by factional struggles, and therefore unable to capitalize on the growing support for the Muslim Conference in the Valley. Ultimately, however, neither party was very large. Between the two of them, both had an estimated 20,000 members. This is certainly not insignificant, but these were not exactly mass parties either. And this is important to say, I think, uh, because the promised plebiscite, as we'll discuss in a moment, was never conducted. Uh, and in, in, in debates around it today, the supposed strength of one or, one or the other party of the Muslim Conference or the National Conference is often cited as a proxy for popular aspirations. And, 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 and therefore, I think it's important to keep in mind that although these formations were not insignificant, neither of them was very large and neither of them really can be claimed as an index of popular sentiment. Well, that brings on to the next question I wanted to ask you. How was it determined that Kashmir would become part of the post-colonial Indian state in the late 1940s? And was there any process of consultation at the time or afterwards? Uh, there was no process of consultation that was undertaken at the time or since, even though it was promised. Just to kind of lay, say a couple of things by way of context, uh, in 1947, uh, areas that were directly ruled by the British, what were called the provinces, were divided along religious lines between Pakistan, which was explicitly styled as a Muslim homeland, and India, which was institutionally secular but implicitly majoritarian. Now, the princely states were expected to join either India or Pakistan, depending on the religious affiliations of a majority of their subjects. And under that logic, Kashmir, Jammu and the Jammu and Kashmir state, with its Muslim majority population, was a state with what historians have called Pakistan potential. However, even after the India-Pakistan border was announced on the 17th of August 1947, the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir had not announced a decision. He was testing waters with both Pakistan and India and also had the RSS whispering in his ear about establishing an independent Hindu kingdom. 
Now, the Maharaja's hand was forced in October of 1947 by a series of armed revolts in the Muslim-majority western provinces of Jammu. Uh, The Maharaja's garrisons fell rapidly one after the other and district after district merged with Pakistan. Uh, In the weeks that followed in these areas, tens of thousands of Hindus and Sikhs were massacred and many more were forced to flee. Now, days later, about like two weeks after these revolts begin, the Pakistani military of uh, Pakistani military sends in a force of several thousand irregulars commanded by Pakistani military officers, and this force marches on the valley. Uh, and between the revolts on the one hand and this march on the valley, the Maharaja's army is completely out, outnumbered and completely routed. Uh, and the Indian establishment agrees to offer military assistance, but makes it conditional on accession. Um, the Maharaja therefore accedes to India and Indian troops arrive and beat back the Pakistani advance. And where the fighting stopped then in 1948 is where the de facto border stands today. In Kashmir, meanwhile, well before these events, virtually the entire leadership of the pro-Pakistan Muslim conference was imprisoned by the Maharaja's government. And the Congress leader leadership had actually persuaded the Maharaja and Sheikh Abdullah uh, to work together to secure accession to India. Uh, and at this crucial moment, Abdullah's support for the accession granted it a veneer of popular legitimacy, uh, while the National Conference Cardo were actually instrumental in securing uh, accession on the ground. Now, hoping to make the visibly unpopular accession more palatable to Kashmiris, the Indian establishment had dismissed the Maharaja and appointed Sheikh Abdullah as a head of state. And I think it's important to stress that he was appointed head of state uh, by the Indian establishment. And certainly this was, I think, a rather handsome reward for his troubles in bringing Kashmir to India. And immediately, Abdullah's government came down very heavily on pro-Pakistan and pro-independence voices. And in addition to the continued presence of the Indian troops, the JNK state's own greatly enlarged police and surveillance apparatus was deployed to this end of political repression. Uh, And I have to say that this was a painfully ironic culmination to a cycle of political activity that had begun in Kashmir in 1941 with a precisely for accountable and responsible government. The people of Kashmir celebrate newly won independence. This British newsreel from 1948 reported on Kashmir's accession to the new Indian state. The Kashmir is the stumbling block to peace between India, represented here by Prime Minister Pandit Nehru, and Pakistan, who sent no representative. Frontier battles have been going on incessantly, and the war that has even put the women of their state under arms occupies the minds of all on this Independence Day. Addressing the crowd, Pandit Nehru speaks of the plebiscite by which Kashmir will be able to affirm its accession to the Indian Dominion. It was this provisional union that last year precipitated the frontier incidents. A river procession is the climax to the seven-day-long celebration. The frontier war recedes as Pandit Nehru, accompanied by Sheikh Abdullah, Kashmir's Prime Minister, says farewell to the people of India's youngest state. 
Uh, now, Jawaharlal Nehru's emphatic promise, which was heard at the UN and around the world, uh, the promise that the accession was conditional and temporary and that a plebiscite would be held to ratify or reject Kashmir's merger with India. Uh, this promise was basically premised on the confidence that the national conference with Indian support would be able to secure a pro-India verdict. As soon as it became clear that this would not happen, uh, Nehru backpedals on the promise of plebiscite. And there are two very significant things that happen around this time that I think are important to mention. One, an acute economic crisis is precipitated by the division of the state. The Kashmir Valley loses its most crucial trade links and the government loses its largest sources of revenue. And this, as you can imagine, causes all kinds of quite uh, serious economic distress. And two, uh, soon after the Maharaja for, is forced to leave the valley, uh, the whole scale massacre and expulsion of Muslims begins in the eastern districts of Jammu, which remain in India. And this massacre is perpetrated by the Maharaja's troops and activists of the RSS and other right-wing Hindu groups. Uh, the tenuous legitimacy of the accession, which was kind of barely hanging by a thread, after these two things, it was really kind of shot to pieces. And India's own intelligence reports confirm this. Uh, one notable figure even saying that it was, and I quote, midsummer madness to believe that we, that is India, can win the plebiscite, unquote. What formal political status was Kashmir granted by the Indian constitution? Uh, before I answer that question, let me quickly mention Junagadh and Hyderabad, which were princely states with Muslim rulers and Hindu majority populations. So really the inverse of Kashmir, uh, the Jammu and Kashmir state. In Junagadh, a plebiscite was actually carried out, which India won. In Hyderabad, the Muslim ruler's attempt to resist merger with India was crushed militarily and military op operations were accompanied by widespread atrocities. Now, as, as for the political status that Kashmir was granted by the Indian constitution, the first thing is the kind of talking of, that we have to talk about is the Article 370 of the Indian constitution. And though this was at the time presented as a transitional or temporary measure, its text simply laid out that the state was a constituent unit of the Indian Union and stipulated that of the Indian constitution, only Article 370 would apply to the Jammu and Kashmir state. Now, as, as I indicated above, Nehru's public posturing apart, this was seen by the Indian establishment as a step towards the unconditional uh, and complete integration of Kashmir into India. Uh, there were, however, a few complications. There was massive popular opposition and India had taken the matter to the UN. There was a great deal of international attention. So the appearance of propriety was crucial. And it's because of that and other things as we were see that the, the fuller integration, quote unquote, of the Jammu and Kashmir state into the Indian Union takes time. Um, I should mention now briefly that in 1952, an agreement was signed between Abdullah and Nehru, which is called the Delhi Agreement. And this, this under this agreement, the Jammu and Kashmir state ceded control over foreign affairs, defense and communications on the face of it, and nothing else. But this is, as we no, in one way or the other, been far exceeded since. And Article 370 actually also included a statement that Indian constitutional provisions could temporarily be applied to Jammu and Kashmir 
through presidential orders and a series of presidential orders have been issued since which have actually rendered the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir far less autonomous than other states. So for instance, even before Article 370 was revoked and the state was broken up into separate units, the power to declare emergencies and suspend civilian governments was, was freely used. How did political life in Kashmir develop in the period between the 1950s and the 1980s? So from 1948 onwards, the story of Kashmir is one of rigged elections, client regimes, and really the complete exclusion of the majority of Kashmiris from political decision making. As I had said earlier, there was growing unpopularity. The kind of the accession was very unpopular and was getting more and more unpopular by the day. And there was also a growing impatience within the Indian establishment for speeding up the full integration of the state into the Indian Union. In 1950, Abdullah's government undertook a program of land redistribution and debt cancellation, hoping to win over the politically restive peasantry uh, in Kashmir by addressing their two great issues, uh, landlessness and very heavy indebtedness. Uh, I want to say quickly that too much is made of these reforms by pro-India writers who are always keen to burnish Abdullah's radical representative credentials. And while these reforms were not insignificant, they were granted under immense popular pressure and their radical potential was largely blunted by the National Conference's desire to consolidate a class of loyal beneficiaries designed to stabilize the regime politically. So, for instance, a lot of the land seized from big landlords was dispersed as patronage to and through the National Conference hierarchy. That said, uh, these reforms actually did provoke a vitriolic reaction from the Praja Parishan, which was a reactionary party formed in 1947 by Hindu landlords, money lenders, traders, and former officials of the recently deposed Maharaja. The Praja Parishad was guided by the RSS and bankrolled by the former Maharaja. Uh, and the Parishad campaigned for the full integration of the Jammu and Kashmir state into India. And it may be worth mentioning that uh, the big landlords in Jammu and Kashmir had been dispossessed without compensation. Whereas in India, the very, very limited land redistribution that did take place, landlords were entitled to uh, compensation. And this is something that's crucial in understanding why the Praja Parishad wanted full integration of the state into India. Now, the Prajaparishad's call found quite fertile ground among common Hindus in Jammu who feared legitimately that the Muslim majority would opt for Pakistan in a, in a plebiscite. And this was not a comforting prospect given the mass slaughter that accompanied the partition in India and Pakistan and in both halves of Jammu and Kashmir. And between 1951 and 1953, the Prajaparishad led a mass agitation demand full integration. In Kashmir, the events of 1951-53 further deepened suspicion towards India and under pressure, Abdullah publicly questioned the finality of accession, something which he had till then kind of quite strenuously insisted on. Um, this alarmed the Indian establishment and Nehru had Abdullah imprisoned and installed uh, Kulam Muhammad Bakshi as head of state in Kashmir. And Bakshi uh, was a man who had been a 
Abdullah's enforcer and a man who was notorious in his use of uh, state as well as personal violence. It's an important kind of development to keep in mind here is that in 1953, Pakistan, the same year that Abdullah is set aside and replaced by Bakshi, uh, Pakistan entered the US orbit and the Soviet Union, hoping to uh, encourage India's non-aligned stance, withdrew its support for Kashmir self-determination at the United Nations. And this eased international pressure on India a great deal. Now, under Bakshi, Kashmir was witnessed to record levels of corruption and rent-seeking, heightened political repression, two rigged legislative assembly elections and a spate of integrationist measures that were forced through. For example, in 1957, a constituent assembly, which had been formed in 1951 after a thoroughly fraudulent election on Abdullah's watch. Uh, So this constituent assembly in 1957 adopted a constitution that declared Kashmir, and I quote, an integral part of India. Bakshi's rule was brought to an end in the winter of 1963 when mass outrage triggered by the theft of a holy relic from Kashmir's most revered shrine erupted into a political upsurge of the kind that was never witnessed before in the valley. Uh, slogans like Ye mulk hamara hai, iska faisla hum karenge, which, mean, which translates as this country is ours and we will decide its future, its political future. These and other slogans demanding political self-determination resounded in the many, many mass protest meetings that, that kind of took place at the time. Interestingly, a few thousand Pakistan-backed armed irregulars that were sent into Kashmir with the hope of taking advantage of this discontent and fomenting a rebellion were met with indifference, though this is certainly not for a lack of anti-India sentiment in Kashmir. And this, in 1965, is the second time that India and Pakistan go to war over Kashmir. The following clip from 1965 describes the Pakistani incursion in bitterly hostile terms. The narrator assumes without question that the people of Kashmir support Indian rule. The infiltrators sneaked into Kashmir early in August as the advance guard of yet another park adventure. Hundreds of them have been mopped up by our men. An ill-fated park attempt based on unfortunate illusions has met the deserved end. The Pakistanis are caught in a pincer movement jointly mounted by the Kashmiri people and the security forces. Our men take immediate action on information supplied by the people. To seal off further Pakistani infiltration and block the raiders' routes, Indian security forces have crossed the ceasefire line. A number of Pakistani posts have been cleared. Pakistan has finally discarded its disguise and is trying to move across the ceasefire line in big strength with its armed forces backed by tanks under air cover. Fighting is going on and heavy casualties in men and equipment have been inflicted on the aggressor. In an air battle, Indian planes have shot down an F-86 American Sabre jet supplied to Pakistan as military assistance. Another F-86 has been destroyed by Indian ground fire. Perhaps the most significant development in these years is the formation of the Plebiscite Front, which was an organization set up by Abdullah loyalists and led indirectly by Abdullah himself from prison. The Plebiscite Front campaigned aggressively 
for a plebiscite with the option of independence. It was outspoken against the excesses of Bakshi's government, demanding the release of political prisoners, many of whom, ironically, had been imprisoned by Abdullah's regime when he was in power. The Plebiscite Front was the single largest political organization that had ever existed in the state thus far. And from its formation in 1955 to 1970, it was the vanguard of pro-self-determination politics in Kashmir. Uh, Abdullah had never been more popular than he was in these years. And for once, the claim that he represented the political aspirations of a majority of Kashmiris were actually true. In 1964, Pathé News reported on the release of Abdullah from prison. The Lion of Kashmir is restored to freedom. The sentences in other jails made it 10 years since he was charged with conspiracy against the state. Now the tall 59-year-old Sheikh Abdullah was unexpectedly a free man again. The 12 others charged with him were also released. His wife, the Begum Abdullah, was overjoyed. The alleged conspirators were freed by order of the new Premier of Kashmir. Talks are proceeding between the ministers of India and Pakistan, and the future of the Kashmir territory, now Indian, is being discussed. There was a tremendous welcome for Sheikh Abdullah as he drove through the streets of Jammu. Muslims, a four-to-one majority of Kashmir's four million population, believe that he favours the territory being incorporated in Pakistan. But Abdullah has had ten years' captivity in which to do a lot of thinking. Meanwhile, his release gives joy to his countrymen. Unfortunately, he ultimately used the tremendous force of these mobilizations as leverage in his negotiations with New Delhi. In 1975, he signed an agreement with Indira Gandhi, who was then the Prime Minister of India. And this agreement is aptly described as a total surrender, a total capitulation to the terms of New Delhi. Article 370 was disingenuously retained, even though the Indian government's power already far exceeded what the article permitted. In return, Abdullah was released from jail and appointed head of state once again. Today, unsurprisingly, Abdullah is remembered primarily as a man who sold his people out. Soon after, the plebiscite front was merged back into the national conference with the question of self-determination, which was so forcefully and persistently raised by the plebiscite front for a decade and a half, simply could not be wished away. And many of those who led the struggle of self-determination in the 1980s and 1990s, including those who led the armed insurgency, actually emerged from the plebiscite front milieu. Why did an armed insurgency break out in Kashmir in the late 1980s and what were its outcomes? It really is the stolen assembly election of 1987 that is the turning point and a very precise turning point. Um, All elections up to this point in Kashmir had been hopelessly rigged. One after the other, client regimes had been foisted on the valley and maintained in power through the use of force, surveillance and selective patronage. In the run-up to the election of 1987, a coalition of 11 political parties ranging from secular to confessional, they announced their intention to contest elections as a united front and they called themselves the Muslim United Front. The constituents of the Muslim United Front 
believed that if an organized political formation independent of New Delhi took power, took public office, political institutions could be used to demand accountable government, economic development, and a just settlement of the political question. The MUF call, the Muslim United Front that is, drew an enthusiastic response, and that election saw a turnout of 80%, which is the highest ever recorded in Kashmir. Had the election been fair, the National Conference and the Congress, which were contesting in an alliance, they would have been routed, they would have been wiped out. But surprise, surprise, election administrators basically fabricated results outright to favor the uh, Congress and National Conference alliance. Despite MUF candidates leading by huge margins on several seats, even according to the official count, the NC and Congress candidates were declared victorious. And Muslim United Front candidates instead, and activists, many of them were beaten, imprisoned and harassed. And this, this is something that completely enrages people. And in the many mass demonstrations that followed, millions poured out into the streets, chanting slogans such as, and I quote, no election, no selection, we want freedom. The 1987 election had conclusively demonstrated that the Indian establishment simply would not allow the formation of a government that it did not control, and that even a well-organized and massively popular political force could not change that. Yusuf Malik, who was one of the defrauded MUF candidates, is now known as Sayyid Salahuddin and heads the Hezbollah Mujahideen, a pro-Pakistan militant group. His campaign manager, Yasin Malik, who was a central figure in the JKLF, that is the pro the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, which is the pro-independence militant organization that launched the insurrection in the valley in 1989. In addition to the 1987 experience, there were a few other developments that were significant. Uh, the first intifada in Palestine, the fall of Soviet-backed regimes in Eastern Europe, and the defeat of the Soviet Union on, in Afghanistan were developments that had quite an electric effect in Kashmir. Now, with the end of the war in Afghanistan, the infrastructure of money, weapons, fighters, and training camps, which was based out of Pakistan and assembled by the Pakistan military with US and Saudi money, what uh, writer Iqbal Ahmed has called Jihad International Inc. Uh, this was this entire infrastructure was directed towards Kashmir, and it is significant that although armed groups existed in the valley since the 1960s, it is only after 1987 that the armed insurgency won widespread legitimacy as a credible mode of pursuing self-determination. To the thousands of young Kashmiri men who crossed the border into Pakistan after 1987, uh, seeking arms and training, um, an armed struggle appeared to be the only way to unsettle the firm consensus between New Delhi and their clients in the valley, uh, a consensus from which a vast majority of Kashmiris were persistently excluded. 
The Tehreek or the armed resistance began in 1988 with the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, which is a pro-independence group with the stated aim of creating a secular and democratic Kashmir. And despite the fact that the JKLF had no overground political network and really no program for mass mobilization, uh, the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front actually attracted a stunning amount of popular support. That year, in response to calls from the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, two-thirds of all working days were strikes. There were massive rallies openly in support of the JKLF. And although the JKLF was vastly outnumbered and outgunned by Indian troops, the mass support allowed them to effectively paralyze the state apparatus. Counterinsurgency operations commenced in January 1990 under the governor Jagmohan, who was a BJP man. And in the first few days uh, of Jagmohan assuming the governorship of Kashmir, hundreds and hundreds of unarmed demonstrators were killed in cold blood by Indian troops. But the massive marches demanding freedom continued. The mobilizations continued. Jagmohan then dismissed the civilian government and enacted several indemnifying laws to prepare for a more extensive use of force. And this took the form of not only the extrajudicial executions of suspected militants, but also the widest possible persecution of the uh, civilian population. Murder, detention, sexual violence, torture, beatings, invasive searches, daily harassment and humiliation, the indiscriminate destruction of property, and extended curfews. This was kind of the standard fare of, of and, and remains even today standard fare for the counterinsurgency grid in Kashmir. In fact, Jagmohan himself describes the counterinsurgency policy as one of, and I quote, collective punishment of a disloyal population. The indiscriminate nature of the counterinsurgency actually fueled further support for armed militancy and drove up the recruitment of fighters to the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, so much so that the training camps in Pakistan could not keep up with the numbers of young men who showed up. Uh, by the mid-1990s, however, popular support for armed militancy had waned a great deal. In addition to the punitive costs of the counterinsurgency, people were also growing increasingly tired of a murky landscape dominated by uh, the unidentified gunmen. Yeah? And the term unidentified gunmen is one that you will often see in news reports uh, and other kinds of writing on Kashmir. Um, and this kind of murky landscape was the result of a proliferation of armed groups encouraged by the Pakistan establishment to undercut pro-independence forces, plus multiple intelligence agencies, both India and Pakistan, operating covertly. And in the, up the mid-90s onwards, this also included surrendered militants who, who were coerced into being part of uh, these shadowy and quite ruthless paramilitary forces. Uh, by the year 2000, major militant groups had actually announced ceasefires. But then, and in the years since, the number of active combatants in Kashmir has dropped 
from about 10,000 in the years 1990 to 93, 1993 to the lower hundreds. But the ruthlessly indiscriminate violence of the counterinsurgency has since not only continued, but has also intensified, especially under the BJP government. Uh, and this could not, I mean, you know, this to my mind is a very clear admission of the fact that Indian troops are confronting and holding down today an entire people in revolt and not just a handful of armed insurgents. And there are army officers, there are officers in the Indian army who have said as much. Um, Another thing that I'd like to mention is the departure in very large numbers of the Hindus of Kashmir from the valley in the 90s, soon after the beginning of the armed militancy. And I'd like to speak a little bit about the circumstances in which this happens. Now, in the early days of the armed militancy, the strategy that the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front employed included a campaign of assassinations targeting prominent figures in the establishment and of the hundred or so people that were targeted in the first several weeks of the uh, of the militancy roughly one third of them were Kashmiri Hindus now although the JKLF uh, does not appear to have been motivated by overt religious sectarianism the the fact is that these killings combined with other displays of public hostility in the valley around that time prompted most of Kashmir's Hindu minority to flee the valley. And at the time, many who fled saw themselves as moving only temporarily out of harm's way and many entertained hopes of returning. But in the time since, very few have been able to actually do so. The following interview comes from an AP News report on the elections in 1996, the first held in Kashmir since 1987. A spokesman for the all-parties Hurriyat Conference, an alliance of separatist groups, gives their view of the elections. We see these elections as a military process. We see these elections nothing more than, a, than, a, than an army operation, than a military operation, because we know for sure that the people are, in, are not interested, the masses are not interested. And the second thing you have to keep in mind is that, you see, even if, if you say elections, okay, let, let's, let's uh, agree for some time that India is going to have elections in Kashmir. How can you justify the presence of 600,000 troops? How can you justify it? You cannot have elections, free and free elections, when you have troops, when you have army, when you have paramilitary forces, or on your heads and shoulders, with your guns pointed uh, towards the common Kashmiri. You mentioned that the role of Pakistani intelligence agencies in cultivating armed groups in Kashmir for their own purposes. How would you characterize the role of the Pakistani state in general in Kashmir? Right. So first off, I want to say explicitly, because I mean, although it's clear, it needs to be said that the Kashmiri struggle for self-determination is not instigated by Pakistan. Autonomous politics existed in Kashmir for decades before the armed militancy interrupted in in 1988-89. And certainly, it is well known that Pakistan has has supported and continues in in some ways to support armed militancy in Kashmir, uh, just as India has supported the Pashtun, the Baloch and the Bangladeshi struggles for self-determination from Pakistan. So this is a a way uh, in which these kind of two hostile style neighbors seek to weaken one another. 
so the Pakistan establishment claims, has claimed and continues to claim that they want only to support the Kashmiri Muslims in their liberation struggle. Uh, but their record of cynical manipulation suggests otherwise. Um, after initially supporting the pro-independence Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front, apparently for a lack of pro-Pakistan options, the ISI, that is the Inter-Services Intelligence, which is the kind of the intelligence, uh, uh, this thing in Pakistan, um, the ISI started to sabotage the JKLF as soon as its resounding popularity became clear. The ISI then threw its weight behind the Hezbollah Mujahideen, which was a pro-Pakistan militant group. And the Hezbollah Mujahideen played an important role in decimating the pro-independence JKLF uh, by the mid-1990s. Soon after this, when the Hezbollah Mujahideen showed some inclination to act a little independently of the ISI, uh, the ISI encouraged the proliferation of radical Islamist groups dominated by non-Kashmiris and motivated by a pan-Islamist agenda to reign in the Hezbollah Mujahideen. Overall, what has the experience been of the last 30 years for the people of Kashmir? And have Indian governments at any point made an attempt to offer reform as well as repression in response to their struggle? There's actually been no effort whatsoever to offer anything other than the combination of client regimes and military repression that India uses to manage popular discontent in Kashmir. And although there is a lot of noise about dialogue between India and Pakistan and a lot of rather insincere rhetoric about healing wounds and winning hearts, uh, the the mode of uh, you know dealing with Kashmir has for India consistently been moving between tightly controlled client regimes and kind of outright indiscriminate military repression. Now, as I said a little while ago, the armed militancy has kind of dwindled to a very, very meager presence since the late 1990s, but counterinsurgency operations have only grown in size and intensity, especially under the BJP. Elections, when held, continue to be sa- continue to be staged, and any and all form of political contestation continues to be disallowed and punished with fatal force. Now, the early two thousands were relatively quiet in terms of political upsurges, uh, and this the Indian media described as normalcy, while Kashmiris would rather describe those years of quiet as the silence of a graveyard. Either way, the silence was broken in 2008 when, despite the overbearing military presence and the free use of fatal force, the valley was witness once again to mass protests. And after 2008, again in 2009, 2010, 2013 and 2016, every time the immediate trigger was different, but every time it was followed by a cycle of unarmed mass protests violent suppression, more protests, more killing, and so on and so forth. In 2009, it was the rape and murder of two Kashmiri women by security forces, allegedly. In 2010, it was the murder of 17-year-old Tufel Mattu. In 2013, it was the hanging of Afzal Guru, an ex-militant who was convicted of involvement in an attack on the Indian parliament in a completely bogus sham trial. The judgment actually said 
uh, we have no evidence uh, of his involvement, but we'll hang him anyway to satisfy the collective conscience of society. And collective conscience of society is a direct quote. Uh, and these instances, in addition to the ongoing violence, humiliation and dignity of murder, rape, torture, enforced disappearances, mass graves, and the complete dislocation of all aspects of everyday life. Uh, life in Kashmir has, for the last kind of many decades, been saturated with violence that is neither accounted for nor held accountable. And there is nothing anyone can do about it. There's nothing that Kashmiris can do about it. The estimates of the people who have died in this period range from 80,000 to 100,000 Kashmiris, depending on who you ask. The number of people who have been brought to justice is zero. The restrictions on political expression in Kashmir have not been confined to the state itself. In 2010, the novelist Arundhati Roy was threatened with criminal prosecution on a charge of sedition. Her offence was to express her support for self-determination in Kashmir. I have travelled to Kashmir. I have very, very dear friends in Kashmir. I want to say quite unambiguously that I do not think that any country that calls itself a democracy has the right to force people to remain with it in a militaristic way, in the way that India is doing in order to prove that it's a secular country, it is brutalizing Kashmir. And this does not prove secularism in any way. So I'm, I'm pretty clear that I do believe that the people of Kashmir have the right to self-determination. They have the right to choose who they want to be and how they want to be. I don't believe that there can be any debate, any clarity, any honesty in, in that, as long as that military occupation continues. In 2016, again, kind of a summer of uh, mass, pro mass unarmed protest, violent repression, and that cycle, in 2016, the trigger was the death of Burhan Vani, a young Kashmiri man who was a commander of the HM, the Hizbul Mujahideen. And there has since been uh, a resurgence of support for militancy in Kashmir, and we, we've seen kind of an uptick in local recruitment for the first time since 2001-2002. Uh, the numbers of militants are still very, very small, though, like, like as I said earlier, in the lower hundreds. And what the, the real challenge to the occupation now is what many have called a total insurgency by the civilian population. And we've all seen images in the media of stone pelters burying their chests to loaded guns. Crowds of thousands have also engaged the army during gun battles with militants, attempting to help militants escape uh, and demanding that the bodies of slain militants be handed over to them. Uh, so the escalation of troop mobilization around the abrogation of Article 370, uh, it's, it's no surprise because given that this is, as I said, a total insurgency by the civilian population with a very, very small, meager, almost insignificant armed component. It is the population of Kashmir that the army is fighting and, and, and that the Indian army is holding down. 
What has been novel about the actions taken by Narendra Modi's government and especially in the last two years since the revocation of Article 370? Before I speak about some specifics in response to that question, I should say that India's policy on Kashmir, whether it is the Hindu fascist BJP or the supposedly secular Indian National Congress or coalitions of various kinds that have taken power uh, at brief moments in in the history or the political history of India, the policy on Kashmir has has been there's been a basic continuity uh, in Kashmir policy. Yeah, so much of what Narendra Modi's government has done in the last two years is 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 much more ruthless, much more repressive, but is basically continuous with India's policy with respect to Kashmir. Uh, now the BJP, which is uh, part of the Sangh Parivar, which is a conglomeration of Hindu right wing organizations, um, they've over the past decade or so that they've been in power, they've succeeded in making India a Hindu majoritarian state in all but name. Yeah? And the demonization of Muslims in India and Muslims in general is kind of the ideological linchpin of the BJP and other Hindu right organizations that are part of the Sangh Parivar. So we've seen, for instance, in, in, in this, in, in the, in, in the, during the tenure of the BJP government, an attempt to impose, uh, and implement significant changes to citizenship laws which threaten India's 200 million Muslims with disenfranchisement. Uh, The state of Jammu and Kashmir actually uh, assumes a special significance for the project of creating a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu state, a Hindu majoritarian state for the BJP, uh, because so long as it existed, the state of Jammu and Kashmir was the only Muslim majority state in the Indian Union. And the special status of the state, which, as I've already said, was you know, it didn't really amount to much. It had already been hollowed out quite a bit uh, in the first decade or so of the 1950s and 1960s. Nevertheless, the specials, the perceived special status of Jammu and Kashmir was seen as and also presented as special treatment and an appeasement of Muslims and minorities by the BJP to the Indian electorate. And so therefore, the state could not be allowed to exist. And the revocation of Article 370, it was really seen, it was really a move to humiliate and subordinate Muslims, uh, to humiliate and subordinate the only Muslim majority state in the uh, that is part of India. And this was also really kind of very important to the optics of domestic politics in India, because this is how uh, Modi and, and, and others showed a decisive face to their right-wing Hindu constituency, yeah? that this is a man who doesn't care about political correctness, he is decisive, he has put Muslims in their place, he has unbroken India, a lot of rhetoric of that kind. Tens of thousands of people gathered at Delhi's Red Fort. Millions in August 2019, Modi used his Independence Day speech to celebrate the revocation of Article 370, as BBC reported. He said his decision to strip Indian-administered Kashmir of its special status was a major achievement and it would restore the region to its past glory. Mr Modi did not refer to the lockdown and communications blackout imposed in Kashmir since his decision 11 days ago. Let's have a listen. It is our duty to fulfill the wishes and aspirations of the people of Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. It's our responsibility that their dreams are fulfilled and the 1.3 billion people of India 
have to work towards that. In order to achieve that goal, whatever obstacles came in the way, we have tried to remove. Well, the decision to revoke Kashmir's autonomy has been criticised by a number of Indian opposition leaders and activists and by neighbouring Pakistan. The disputed territory has been in lockdown since Delhi's decision. Hundreds of people remain in detention as well. Shortly after his speech, uh, the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan posted a tweet urging the international community to act on the Kashmir issue. He wrote, I want to warn the international community if it allows this to happen, it will have severe repercussions and reactions in the Muslim world, setting off radicalization and cycles of violence. This move also has historic symbolic significance for the Hindu right wing because um, uh, the the Praja Parishad, at which I mentioned earlier, was kind of uh, it, it it was it was led and guided uh, by the RSS. Yeah, so the um, revocation of Article three seventy, the removal of the special status uh, of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, is also a fulfillment of a long cherished Hindu right wing agenda for the. BJP and the Sangh Parivar more generally. Now, uh, the basic kind of, uh, as I said, in terms of the broad policy, it's there's basic continuity, but uh, a much more ruthless employment of force and repression. Uh, in addition to this, the BJP is is more so than other than previous governments. It's firmly anti-Pakistan, sort of refusing any kind of negotiation with Pakistan, refusing any kind of international attention. And they've been very consistent and very forceful in uh, insisting that this is an internal matter and not something that uh, others have a right to speak on. Now, what is especially concerning uh, is, is that although the political autonomy that Article 370 was supposed to grant the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, although, as I said, that had already been obliterated, that had already been hollowed out decades ago. And therefore, at one level, the abrogation of 370 is just is just for sure. There are also some pragmatic things that are involved here, Yeah, that the, there was some kind of economic protections, let me say, that Article 370 put in place, where, for instance, it was only people who were domiciled in the state who could purchase land there. And it's it's very, very concerning. It's, it's a matter of quite serious concern that immediately after the removal of Article 370, there's been a massive round of what we can only call accumulation by dispossession. Yeah, Nomadic uh, pastoralist communities that had been granted access and granted rights to forest lands to use as pasture, for example, are being dispossessed on a very wide scale. Some of the lands that had been distributed under the land reforms, which I mentioned earlier, there was one round in the 50s, one round in the 70s, though the ownership and control of those lands is under question. There are proposals to build uh, kind of mining operations in many different parts of the state, which will not only be ecologically disastrous, but will also cause a great deal of displacement. There's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, about 22 dams that are like on like dams with the with the that are supposed to be that are proposed to uh, be built in different parts of the state. So you have a massive round 
uh, of accumulation by dispossession already underway and it's likely to only kind of pick up pace in the years that follow another thing that's that's very very worrying is that there is a process of delimitation that is underway uh, which is which is uh, meant to reorganize administrative units and therefore change uh, and uh, electoral units and and this process is guided by a clear desire to ghettoize muslims and increase the number of electoral seats uh, from hindu majority districts yeah and so the this is clearly an attempt to through this kind of manipulation and delimitation ensure that a bjp government is able to come to power in the state without relying on any other parties for support and this will be a first so the pretense of political space in other words has been completely obliterated or completely obliterated as a final question if the people of kashmir now or in the foreseeable future had the freedom to determine their own political status what option do you think they would favor i think it's i think i can say with absolute certainty that not india like not india is something that the overwhelming majority of people will agree on it's hard to say that once that is kind of said it's hard to say whether there will be a large number of people in support of pakistan or in support of independence but i can share what my impression is and my impression is that that a majority would be in favor of independence Many thanks to Vanessa Chishti for giving us such a comprehensive history of Kashmir. You can also read her essay, Kashmir, The Long Descent, on the Catalyst website. <laughs>